Amen. All right, so it is uh, January 25th. It is 2017. Our message today is called Moses and Missions. So typically people think of Moses as, uh, well, I don't even want to say typically how people relate to Moses, but usually they don't associate him with missions. I have been studying the book of Exodus now for, I don't know, 34 chapters and probably 40 or 50 weeks, hundreds of hours of recordings, and uh, I have fallen in love with Moses. We always preach about the things that we're struggling with, the things that we're encountering, what has impacted us in the Word, and I hope tonight to impress you about the two things that I'm most impressed with this week. I am most impressed this week with Moses and a heart for missions. We were in a prayer meeting last night, and the Lord has been dealing with me for some time about Isaiah, uh, the 49th chapter. Uh, Many of you know that. I've met with you privately. I've discussed it with you. And in the prayer meeting, it came forward that our next stop in uh, what was once the ancient Persian kingdom and is now modern-day Turkey is probably Antakya, or what the Bible would call Antioch of Syria. This is about 12 miles from Apollo, Syria, and uh, needless to say, it's one of the most dangerous places on the planet, and it's where all three of Paul's missionary journeys began. It is where Christians were first called Christians. As we were reading, not only were there scriptural confirmations, but there was also confirmation in the Spirit, and uh, both were in agreement with each other. And if you'd like to hear more about that, uh, Nick and Bajarajina take pretty good notes, and uh, they were there. Having said all of that, when contemplating going to a war zone, you have to be properly inspired. You have to know for sure that you have heard from God. Uh, One of the ways that you know for sure is he confirms it in his word. We are not a church that looks for confirmation in cloudburst or the latest Christian radio song or somebody's bumper sticker or license plate. We find our confirmations of the Spirit in the Word of God. And everywhere I have looked for months now, all I can see is God's heart for missions. Are you ready to go on a journey with me? Are you going to help me out tonight? Amen. So... The very first thing I'd like to talk to you about is the Torah that Moses wrote. Most of you who know me know that I love the Torah. I love the Tanakh. I love the Brit Hadashah. I love the Bible, period. But there is something so fascinating about the way in which the Torah begins. These five books that we generally refer to as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy all have different Hebrew names. The Hebrew names are taken from the first sentence of each book. In other words, we named a book Numbers, but that is not what Moses called it, not what the descendants of Abraham called it, not what it's called in Israel today. The Hebrew names are Bereshit, Shemot, Veikra, Bemidbar, and Devarim. Are you all reading those from left to right across? Their meanings come from the first sentence. For instance, in Bereshit... um, In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Bereshit means beginning. So Exodus begins with these are the names. 
So the Hebrew for names, plural, is shemot. In other words, looking at that bottom part of this slide, you could read the names translated of the Torah as in the beginning, these are the names he called in the desert and gave his words. That in itself is beautiful. It means that not only is each book inspired by God, but the way and th- that they are ordered and relate to each other is also inspired by God. It tells an integrated story and has an integrated design. Can you see that? Okay, well, when we're looking at that in the larger story, very often when we're talking about the book of Shemot or Exodus, what we look at are slaves that were set free. Or perhaps we get focused on the golden calf. But I think the title is the title for a reason. Since it is Shemot, what is important about names in the book of Exodus? Turn with me to Genesis We're going to be in Genesis 15. Say there when you were there. All right, so Christopher made it there. Nolan made it there. All right, let's practice speaking out loud, right? You said you're going to help me tonight. You ready? Who can say amen in the house of God? Now, those of you that are white, notice you didn't drop over dead. It's okay to speak in church. And those of you that are not white, it's okay to help a brother out every now and then. I don't know why white people are terrified to talk in church. I've never understood it. But the thing is, this is supposed to be an interactive family dialogue. So I'm going to talk to you tonight. If you stay steadfast in your position that you are not going to speak in church, then I'm just going to come sit down next to you and we'll have a personal conversation everybody else can listen to. So are you going to speak to me? Spencer, you going to speak to me in the back? Yes, sir. Amen. Okay, so in Genesis 15. Yay, man, there we go, church. In Genesis 15, picking up in verse 13. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain, somebody say for certain, that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterwards they will come out with great possessions. This was said to Abraham somewhere around 2000 BC. And his descendants in fact went into Egypt which was destined to be the land of slavery. Do you remember who they went in under? Who who was uh, only... Uh, distinct from Pharaoh um, by the throne that they sat on? Joseph. Joseph. Things were pretty good for them. But what did the prophecy say? They would be enslaved and mistreated. Anybody looking forward to that? Anybody woke up this morning and said, Oh man, I hope I get some mistreatment today. (laughs) Probably not. You probably were not praying and ordering up a double helping, a water size of mistreatment today. Can I tell you, people have never been any different. So why did God begin the book with the title, not Exodus, but Shemot? Turn with me to the very first chapter of Exodus. These are the names of the sons of Israel. This is where the title comes from. 
Why might that be? Do you think maybe God wants you to know that He remembers your name during the troubled times? And He wants to know if you will remember His name? The question is not, does God know your name and what you're going through? Psalm 33 says He considers all mankind. He forms your heart. He knows exactly what you're doing. The Bible makes the astounding claim that He knows the motives behind your thoughts. Friends, I don't even know why I think the things I think sometimes. I'm shocked at some of the things that I think sometimes. I mean, I got flat riled up a few minutes ago. I don't know why. I just don't like some things, right? But the Lord knows exactly why that is. If I seek Him, He'll show it to me, right? The Word is a mirror. He, the Word of God will teach you everything. Well, when He says these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt... He wanted you to know, I wrote down the names of those who were going into bondage because I fully intend to bring them out of bondage. Amen. Somebody say, that's a good God. So then Exodus is not so much the story just of the slaves exiting, but also that God knows the bondages that people were headed into and had a plan to bring them out. It turns out that we're a part of a much bigger plan. Let's go to Exodus 12, 12. In Exodus 12, 12, the very famous Passover. All right, one time, are we all there? On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Say, I am, say gods of Egypt. And then he finishes it. I am the Lord. He wants you to know that at the same time that you go into bondage, he's got a plan to bring you out. That he knew your name when you went into bondage. He will call you by name and bring you out. And at the very same time, he is capable of judging the very gods that caused your bondage. Oh, that's good news, saints. If you begin to think about that, you cannot be a victim. Because anything that you endure, your God knew you were going to endure. He had a plan that would bring you out of what you were going to endure and punish even the principalities that participated in your demise. Oh man, that must be frustrating for the devil. I have no sympathy for him. Not even a little bit. The only kind thing that we have found that we can say about that particular spiritual power is that he's always busy. Ephesians 3.10 makes a yet another astounding claim about the exodus, about the church, about our lives in general. If you can wrap your minds around this, this will forever change the way that you look at the word. In Ephesians 3.10, speaking of God, the, the His here, the antecedent for His is the deity. His intent was that now, through the church, say the church, the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. God is teaching the heavenly powers a lesson through our deliverance 
and obedience. That is an incredible story then. When we look and go, well, the Lord created man, and if the lamb was slain from the foundations of the earth, what does that mean? It means that God knew your name when you went into bondage. He calls you by name out of bondage, and that your entire story is speaking a message to the heavenly realms about the living God. That's a slightly different perspective than we tend to have. Your life is important. What you do with your life is important. Each book of the Bible is inspired, but the way they relate to each other is also equally inspired. You are the work, the workmanship of Christ. That is an inspired thing. How you relate to the rest of mankind is equally inspired. Moses did not stand alone. He formed a nation. That nation loves him. We're now on the slide that says Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu. <coughs> Moshe Rabbeinu, Ived Hashem Avi Ha Nevim Zayah. This is what the nation of Israel refers to Moses as. It translates to Moses, our teacher, servant of the name, father of all of the prophets, may his merit shield us. Oh man, more than anything else, Moses carried the character, the authority, and the body of work, the name of Yahweh God. Do you know that if we ever want to be successful, whether it's in foreign missions or domestic evangelism or just plain Christian living, it, it really depends on how seriously you take the name Christian. How seriously you take the character, body of work, authority, mission of the Christ. A name in Hebrew is far more than just a group of phonetic symbols. A name has to do with everything that that represents. Are you known by the name of Jesus? What does that mean? Does that mean when somebody says Jesus, you turn and look? What does it mean? To be known by the name of Jesus means you should be known for the works of Jesus. To be known by the name of Jesus means you have the authority of Jesus. To be known by the name of Jesus, to be immersed into the name of Jesus, means that you are immersed into the very character of Jesus. Oh, wow. Moses did that. He did that so much so that 762 times he's referred to in the Older Testament, 85 times in the Newer Testament. Friends, I challenge you to see if you can find anybody else that is mentioned in the Bible by name 847 times. Moses is a pretty amazing man, huh? Yes. Amen. Amen. Moses is a pretty amazing man, huh? Yes. Amen. I want to talk to you about a few contrasts that are in Moses' life. I find that men of God are often an interesting contrast. For instance, they can be tough as nails, but sensitive as a regenerative heart. They, uh, they can stand their ground in the face of opposition, but yield in the moment of a fleshly conflict. They, can, they are walking paradoxes between that which is of heaven and that which is of earth. Well, look at these kind of contrast in Moses' life. He was born the child of slaves, but he lived as the son of a queen. He was born in a hut, but he was raised in a palace. 
He was born in poverty, but he enjoyed the wealth of Egypt. He was said to have led armies, but he was known to have kept flocks. He was a mighty warrior, but the meekest of men. Educated in the Egyptian court, but spent his life dwelling in a desert. He had all the wisdom of Egypt, and yet possessed the faith of a small child. It is said that he was slow in speech and tongue, but he talked with God. He held the staff of a shepherd, but he wielded the very power of God. He was a fugitive from Pharaoh, but an ambassador for the living one. He died on Mount Nebo, but he appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration with Christ. No man was at his graveside, but God buried him. Is Moses pretty awesome? Moses is an excellent example for us for many reasons. If you wanted to learn about eschatology, right? You could turn to the book of Revelation. You wouldn't understand it if you haven't read the other 65 books. But you could turn there. Of course, if we just studied the life of Moses, watch this eschatological parallel that you will find. Moses was born of Jews, just like Jesus. He was accepted and made famous by Gentiles first, just like Jesus. He was rejected by his own people initially, just like Jesus. He, will return, he returns for his own people, just like Jesus. He goes to war with the nations on behalf of Israel, just like Jesus. He gathered a mixed multitude under the blood, just like Jesus. And he came to form a new nation, just like Jesus. That in and of itself is an extraordinary framework to begin your eschatology from. And it solely comes from the life of Moses. Moses is pretty awesome, isn't he? I want to talk to you for a second about calves, crosses, and intercession. Those of you that come on Monday nights, you will recognize that little picture up there to the right. We've learned about chiastic structures in Hebrew, and I don't have the time or the inclination to go through that now. But what I can tell you is 32 chapters into Exodus, I fell in love with Moses in an entirely new way. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 32. I'm sorry, Exodus 32 and verse 32. Say there when you were there, and we're going to come right back to this slide. In Deuteronomy 32... 32, we have an extraordinary statement. Moses says, but now, please forgive their sin. Say, forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Uh, I I think we've heard about this uh, to our detriment. We've heard about it in too light a terms. Um, Name something you love in the room. Wife, somebody said. Guitar, somebody said. Roughly equivalence values. Nearly the same shape, right? Bible, what else? Beard, what else? (laughs) Cigars. Okay, what else? (laughs) What else? Daddy, that's an excellent answer. Have you ever loved anything enough to lose your salvation over it? I mean, in general, is that not the worst thought you could possibly have? But at the thought of his people being cast away, Moses said, if you're going to blot them out of your book, blot me out. There's only one other human being that has ever had that kind of heart. 
uh, and that's Jesus the Christ. He was willing to die in the place of us to suffer separation from God Himself for us. There's only one human being that says, say, oh, no, no, no. Paul said, I could wish that I were cursed for my people. Yeah, he could wish, but he didn't. I could wish it too. I, I'm not going to, but I could. Think about that for a minute. What kind of heart would you have for the nations of the world? for your neighbors, for the next lost person, if you had Moses' heart beating in your chest? I mean, is this not caring more about your neighbor than yourself? I'm going to be honest. I'm not quite there yet. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at this astounded. Could we go back to that slide for a second? While we're thinking about this, It occurred to us, if you don't get this because you don't come on Monday nights, find somebody who does and they'll share it. But that same pattern that Philippians 2 follows, where he didn't consider something uh, himself equal with God, something to be grasped, but instead takes the servant's nature and becomes in human likeness like a man and is humbled even to the point of death, not just any death, but the low point is death on a cross. Jesus was given the name above every name because he humbled himself. Every knee will bow to him because he became a servant. And he is Lord of Lord and King of Kings because he didn't feel the need to prove he was equal with God. That that chiastic structure there is found throughout the book of Exodus. And do you know what the low point and high point is? Oh, it's so interesting. Some view the cross as the low point of Jesus' life. I mean, this is when mankind proved how idolatrous we are. From that standpoint, it's a low thing. From the standpoint of what the cross accomplishes, it's the greatest accomplishment in human history. Jesus Christ, a man, was completely obedient to God. That's never been done before. Lived a perfect sinful life. The fullness of the deity was in him and he did only what he saw the Father doing. Never did he break God's will. So was the cross a tragedy or a triumph? The cross was a? The cross was a? Well, it occurred to me when reading Exodus 32, I've always seen the golden calf as the biggest tragedy in Israel's history. What a terrible, sad thing. A man's on a mountain, he's interceding for them, and and they go off in pagan revelry. It's got to be the worst chapter in all the Bible. But it's not. It's the greatest triumph in Israel's history. Do you know why? Because one man stood up and said, if you're going to blot them out, blot me out too. He was not willing for a moment to distance himself from the people he was called to lead because of their sin. Instead, the very Spirit of God called him to save them. It was the triumph of the book of Exodus and the best picture of Christ you will find in most of the Bible. Where do you ever see a heart like Moses? In fact, in the very next chapter, Moses is standing on a rock of this chapter actually no next chapter he's standing on a rock paul makes the point that that rock is christ he is hidden in the cleft of the rock the new testament says we should be hidden in christ he's covered by the very hand of god i 
I mean, I can't think of a, a better picture of a man who is wrapped up in all that is Christ, the very hand of the Father. And yet I'd never seen Moses that way before. And when it was then that I began to see Moses, not just like Jesus, but also I started to think of him as a missionary. Turn with me to Psalm 106. Say there when you're there. Look at verse 19. At Horeb, they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glory for an image of a bull which eats grass. They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt, miracles in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. So he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses his... His chosen one stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them. It occurred to me that Moses stood in the breach in a way that only Jesus would do. But Jesus has called us to stand in the breach for others. We can look and say a land is God forsaken, but we indict ourselves with our own words because he's told us to go into every land. No land is actually God forsaken, it's church forsaken. If we had a heart like Moses, then we could not stand by and watch people destroyed. We would stand in the breach and desire to see them saved. Somebody say that you see it. Come on, everybody say that you see it. So Moses didn't have a cruel, legalistic heart. He didn't have uh, some kind of heart that lent towards bondage of some kind. Moses had the very heart of Christ. In fact... Moses' intercession foreshadows Jesus. You can see these on the slide uh, that begins with Romans 8, 34, 1 Timothy 2, 5, Hebrews the 7th chapter, Hebrews the 9th chapter, 1 John the 2nd chapter. All of these, no one in here would dispute. Jesus had a heart for intercession. He lives to make intercession. 1 John goes so far as to say, if anyone sins, we have an advocate. But do you know who modeled that for us long before any of those books were written? Moses did. He advocated for the people. They were guilty of sin. Say guilty of sin. But he advocated for them anyway. Do you know why? Because he had a heart for God and he had a heart for people. And he wanted to see the two reconciled. What do you have a heart for? Do you have a heart for personal profit? Do you have a heart for the enlargement of your tent? Have you prayed the prayer of Jabez so much that that's all you can see Christianity is? Some kind of perverse spiritual piggy bank? Because we are supposed to have hearts like Moses. One that wants to bridge the gap between God and man. One that says, I now stand in Christ and I have been anointed as God's chosen one to bridge that gap. Oh, come on, church. Is that not our calling? It is our calling. The further you go with Moses, the more ways you see that he's like Jesus. I had a list of 75 in the pastor's office today. But the pastors and I, we sat around and we parried it down to 14 ways that Moses and Jesus were alike. We're going to make all of these available to you online. How many of you know what Exodus 15, 27 says? Say, I do if you do. 
Oh, three of you. So I'll quote it for you. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees. How many of you does that verse have special meaning to now? Okay, the rest of you that don't understand, let me give it to you in a 30-second synopsis. In the Bible, when God wants to reveal Himself, He does it to a small select group first. He does that because they will then be ambassadors to the larger group for Him. He starts with the number 12. He loves the number 12. It has to do with His government on earth. That's the way that he did it. He's surrounded by the 12 constellations in the heavens. And when he is on earth, he likes to be surrounded by the 12 tribes of Israel. In his economy, he works based on the number 12. So he calls 12 people, 12 entities that he has blessed and shared himself with to be a witness to the rest of the world. In the Hebrew mind, the rest of the world is always symbolized by the number 70. And they are because that's how many children Ham, Shem, and Japheth had in the first generation off the boat. So then when we come and we see 12 springs and 70 palm trees, it is those with special revelation were always intended to feed the rest of the world what God was feeding them. Say that makes sense? Now it has special meaning to you like it does me. In 2011, God began to speak to me about that. We began... To go to the nations in a new way, with a, with a new uh, forcefulness, a new excitedness, and it hasn't stopped. That's why we must go to Turkey now, and we're going to, okay? Uh, that's probably going to occur in the next few weeks, so please be in prayer for us. Does it make any of you nervous to think about being 12 miles from Apollo, Syria? I mean, anybody want to send your children with us? Not one hand went up, but we take ours. You know, it's an interesting thing. Say, well, it's not wise. Well, how wise is it to lead your people out and face the Red Sea with Pharaoh at your back? How wise is it that your battle plan is to stand and walk around the city in silence seven times? How wise is it to believe that an iron axe head would float or that when you pray, you can change the meteorology of this earth? How wise is it? But you either stand in faith or you don't stand at all. Here are 12 ways... 14 ways in which Moses was like Jesus. Both Moses and Jesus sent forth 12 first. Have you ever read that? 12 spies into the land, 12 apostles. Both Moses and Jesus appointed 70. Yeah, 70 elders, 70 disciples that would go into all of the world. Both of them had their life endangered in infancy. Both of them had their life threatened throughout their lifetime. Both of them... And had an encounter at a well outside the land that they were living in. So when Moses runs uh, from Pharaoh, he ends up at a well where he meets a woman that was a woman of appointment. Jesus is outside of Judea. He's in Samaria. And he has an encounter with a woman at a well that is a woman of appointment. Um, they both had a season of seclusion. How many years was Moses in the desert? It's actually 80, but, but I understand how you got there. He was 40 when he killed the Egyptian. He went away in seclusion for 40 years. Then he went back to deliver the people and spent 40 more years in the desert. He had 80 years in the desert. But the point is, we don't know much about what happens in his life in Midian. We know exactly how it began at a well. We know when it ended. He saw a burning bush. 
Have you ever considered how similar that is to the, about Jesus' life? We, we know how his life began, and then there is this 30-year gap where he's in a carpenter shop. And we don't know much about what happens and unless you embrace the Maccabees, and then, then you get a few very strange stories, right? Uh, they were both shepherds. They were both men acquainted with sorrows. They both washed their brothers for the priesthood. Oh, come on, that's good. It's Wednesday night. You're having a tough time. But you should think about being washed by the Lord. Is that not beautiful? You know who did it before Jesus did it? Moses. They were both called deliverers. All right. They were both transfigured. Both of them came off of a mountain with a glowing face that others marveled at. Who else in all of the Bible had a heart like Moses and a face that glowed like that? Said, well, Stephen's face glowed. Yeah, but he didn't come off of a mountain. And by the way, he was quoting Moses right before that happened. They both were said to be perfect in their obedience. Oh, come on, Eric. Moses wasn't perfect. Well, he made the, the building exactly as God had said to make the tabernacle. He was not a perfect man. But he perfectly obeyed what he was told to do regarding the the Mishkan, the tabernacle. He completed his work. Say completed. completed. Moses didn't just start it, he finished it. Jesus didn't just start it, he brought it to completion. They both appointed others that would follow them. Oh, come on now. Who followed Moses? Yeah, and so did a nation. Sometimes you can tell what kind of leader you are. By how many people are walking in your footsteps behind you? When Moses led them out, how many footsteps went through the Red Sea? All of them did. In fact, they had a few Egyptian bonuses, right? And he raised up such a mighty man of God after him when they crossed the Jordan. Do you know how many Israelites crossed the Jordan? All of them. Jesus Christ is worthy of the best kind of leadership the Bible has. Do you know what? What has to attest to that? Your footsteps following him. Have you followed him where he told you to go? Or do you sit and contemplate? Say that you're praying about what you already know he's told you to do. See, we diminish the leader that we say we follow when we actually sit on our salvation and praise our blessed assurance. We glorify the leader that we follow when we put our feet where his feet are. And do the things that he does. It's all about carrying his name. Do you want to carry his name? With all my heart, I want to carry his name. Let's look at seven scriptures about God's heart that have to do with Zedekah and Mishpat. Zedekah is the word for righteousness. Uh, Mishpat is the word for uh, judgment or justice in the Bible. In Genesis 18, 19, we're going to walk through these together. Y'all want to walk through these together? Y'all sleepy? How y'all doing, youth group? Y'all doing okay? Okay. In Genesis 18, 19, seven scriptures about God's heart. Then the Lord... No, that's 17. 18, 19. For I have chosen him. Say, chosen him. So that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is 
right and just. What is Zedekah and what is Mishpat? So that the Lord will bring about for him, for Abraham, what he has promised him. It turns out that it's not enough to be redeemed. You were redeemed so that you could do what is right and what is just. Because if you're a man who is redeemed and you do not do what is right and what is just, then people after you will not follow you. You say that you were following a great leader, but if you don't do what he does, then what will the people do that follow you? This is why we must go. This is why we go into all of the nations. If we do not go, we speak a resounding message that says, God doesn't care. And so we have things that have come down to us in the English language like God forsaken. Can I tell you the people of Peru are not God forsaken? Can I tell you the people of India are not God forsaken? Can I tell you that the people of Apollo Syria are not God forsaken? It's just that much of the church has forsaken them. Can you be following Jesus and not do what he does? See, we must follow him. Or else, what will happen with those who follow us? We are supposed to do what is right and what is just. When we think of what is right, this word Zedekah has to do with the kind of integrity that you have to know God's heart and will. Okay? Zedekah has to do with that sense of righteousness that you have when you know what the Word of God says, when you have God's decisions. Mishpat has more to do with how you carry it out, how you render God's judgments. Now, there's, there's a hundred more ways that we could vary those two words. They're so related and yet so nuanced that you could do this many times, but it's why the first one, Zedekah, tends to be translated as righteous, and the second one, Mishpat, tends to be uh, translated as just or justice or judgment. You'd be shocked how many times God says He wants us to be both righteous and just. That He cares about righteousness and justice. He doesn't just care about getting you right. He cares about you becoming so righteous that you want to carry out His judgments on the earth. Does it bother you when children grow up without parents? Okay, let's do this for just a second, right? Are y'all with me? It's going to be okay? Anybody going to get so mad at me you stand up and throw something at me? I just want to know so I can hide behind Jennifer. Okay. Um, Let's pick one here. Chris, stand up on your chair. I thought you'd like that. Is that a cute little kid? We prayed for Chris and a rib grew into his body that wasn't there before. We've seen Chris healed of amazing things. He's a little walking miracle, right? How would you feel if Chris had no dinner tonight? And not just tonight, none tomorrow. And he didn't know if he would have any this week. Now, let's take Chris' sweater off. Let's take Chris' pants off. Let's leave Chris with very little clothing. How do you begin to feel? Now, let's take away Chris' mother and Chris' father and put him outside of a garbage dump. You know why I go to Mexico? Because that's how I found Mexico. 
was children just like Chris. See, when you're looking at Chris, it pricks your heart. Is it really any different if they live in another place? Is it, is it really any different if they're another color? You know, it's an amazing thing. People say no, but nothing quite moves you like seeing somebody that looks like your child in trouble. Well, what did we do when we recognized that they're God's children? You know, I used to share it with you all of the time. If I called you and said, hey, we're friends. I cannot get to Chris and I need you to. And you didn't go. We probably wouldn't be friends, huh? Well, what happens when God is calling you to go to somebody else's Chris? Yeah? Chris, you can sit down, son. Okay. So the point's not to beat you up over this. The point is to say there is no more serious call than to do what is righteous and what is just. There is no serious, more serious heart than to say God knows their names when they got into trouble and He is calling their name to help them get out of trouble, but He uses you to do it. He gave you His name. And the question was not, would He remember your name? The question was, would you remember His name? So let me ask you, have you remembered His name? Or has He just become that magic get-out-of-jail-free card? The every time I pass, go, or God, collect $200 card. Okay? Because we were saved for a purpose. Right? We were saved for a serious purpose. 2 Samuel 8.15, 2 Chronicles 9. 8. Actually, when you look at 2 Chronicles 8.15, you find out that God chose David. And He chose David to do what is just and right. When you look at uh, 2 Chronicles 9.8, He chose Solomon because he would do what is just and what is right. Turn with me to Psalm 33. Say, there when there. In Psalm 33, look at verse 5. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of His unfailing love. You know, one old demonic lady told me the other day, the Muslims have had their chance. She was reading a copy of the Torah when she said it to me. Let me know that she's deceived beyond all question. should see the way her face contorted when she said it. Holding the very book that explains God's heart and models it through Moses' heart and could care less about more than a fifth of the world's population. How, how could that be? That's what deception is. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. He loves it. You might say that you love righteousness, but how concerned are you with justice? Well, that depends on if you were wronged. The man that I threw out here earlier, the last thing that he said to me was that the judge will have justice. Well, we'll see. I mean, we, we will see. Are you only concerned with justice if it's somebody that you know that was wronged? Or are you concerned with justice in general? The Lord loves righteousness. He loves justice. And the earth is supposed to be full of His unfailing love. Well, who fills it? Who fills the earth? Do you remember what Adam's calling is? 
Adam's calling was to fill the earth, to be fruitful, to multiply, to subdue the earth. The word was male. It was to fill or replenish. That was repeated to Noah. To fill the earth. Are you spreading God's righteousness and his justice? You want to know what justice looks like? When somebody has been a slave to wicked thinking. When somebody who has all the potential of the Lord has been beat into a greasy little spot so that they're living a lesser existence than they're supposed to. Is that just? Wow, they got the same chance everybody else did. Well, that's not a righteous thought. See, that righteous thought, that integrity of heart, would not be willing to be distant from that person, but instead would be motivated to see them born again. You would want to see justice done. You would want to see the oppressor torn out of their lives so that they too could have a beautiful marriage, so that they too could know the love of our King, so that they too could raise their children in righteousness Injustice. Our Christianity has become so pathetically self-centered. The only reason that you were born again was so that you could then fill the earth with what you had now received. How were you doing with that, saint? Let's move on from Psalm 33 to Psalm 36 and verse 6. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. Man, we love it in our songs. Your justice like the great deep. O Lord, you preserve both man and beast. How priceless is your unfailing love, both high and low. Say high High. and low. Low. Come on, say low. low. Among men find refuge in the shadow of your wings. Do we only go to those that smell good? Do you only go to those that are the same color? Do we only go to those that we're pretty sure won't hurt us? Is that what Jesus did? Okay. So you can never ask as your first question about a missions trip, is it safe? If it's safe, you probably shouldn't go. Let the Baptist go. I'm sorry. Or the clown on 59 can just send them some Colgate or something, right? How about Psalm 103? We're almost out of the Psalms here. Psalm 103, verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord works what? Righteousness and justice for how many who are oppressed? How does he do it? Does the Lord of glory leave the high and holy place? Does he incarnate in someone and show up and do it? How does he do it? He does it 
by calling a man that is his ambassador that carries his name to do it. Why do I love Moses? Because Moses was scared to death and went anyway. Because Moses felt inadequate but turned out to be totally adequate by the Spirit of God. Why do I love Moses? Because he got it done. That's why. Oh, church, if we had a heart like Moses... Your knees would knock together, but you wouldn't let that slow you. Your tongue would fail you at times, but you wouldn't let that stop you. The very people you were trying to help would often turn on you, but that wouldn't stop you because you loved God. Oh, man, that we could have a heart like Moses. God wants to work justice for all the oppressed. When the prophetic word came forward, said, you'll be in this area and this area. I was like... Of course. <laughs> of course. I mean, why not just put us in, you know, 1943 in the center of Berlin, right? Because he will send those who will go. It doesn't do any good to send those who will not go. Praise God. If that's what we're good for, then that's what we're good for. I'm not about to tell him no. He owns me. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Can I tell you what, can I tell you how much I love that God would send me? I had to pick anybody else. There are probably better choices in this room, but the question is, would you go? Let's look at Psalm 106. Who can proclaim, this is verse 2. Who can proclaim the mighty acts of the Lord or declare his praise? Blessed are they who maintain justice, who constantly do what is right. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Come to my aid when you save them, that I may enjoy the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may share in the joy of your nation and join your inheritance in giving praise. Do you want to join in Israel's blessing? Do you want to receive the inheritance that was promised to them? Well, then we have to constantly do what is just and what is right. No part of our lives are supposed to be self-serving. They're all supposed to be about Zedekah and Mishpat. I want to give you three areas that I've come to admire Moses. I couldn't stop thinking about him. I feel kind of silly. I've been a Christian 23 years now. And I thought I loved Moses before. I've taught the book of Exodus more than a few times. I thought I loved him before. I haven't discovered any verse that I didn't know about previously. I mean, I thought I loved it before. And now all of a sudden, all I can see in it is a model that we should aspire to. And the truth is, we've been given more. I mean, he was looking forward to the things that fell on you. Do you know how unfair that is? Do you know how unfair it is that a prophet like this had to look forward and it's already come to you and you take it for granted? Do you know how unfair that is? It's almost as unfair that by virtue of your birthright, none of you have ever really been hungry. It's also just as unfair that by virtue of your geography, 
None of you have ever really been scared. Not scared like some get scared. I've noticed lately everybody's a victim in this country. I, oh man, I'll get hate mail if I do it. Even our soldiers. And I love them. I'm not at all trying to speak negatively about soldiers. But we have a full-scale campaign to tell every soldier that has served in the foreign arena that they've come back and they're damaged goods. We have new designations that have never existed before, and we are trying to cram every soldier into it. Guys swam through body parts at D-Day. I mean, unimaginable horrors. And you know what they did? They came back and built the most prosperous nation on the planet. And we are trying to cripple a generation with the thought that if they've experienced anything difficult, had anything that was hard, if they had to shoot somebody, that they're damaged goods forever. Every single man mentioned in the Hebrews Hall of Fame killed somebody. They weren't damaged goods. Yeah, I understand why it's quiet. I'm not attacking soldiers. I am attacking the culture that tries to make a victim out of any man that shows valor. I'm trying to attack the culture that says you are beat down lowly no matter how wealthy, equipped, prosperous in every way that you are says that you are some persecuted class. The truth is, is that at the moment that you should have forgot about Moses from history, he rose to take history's second spot of all time. Oh, man. Let's go to Exodus 2. It's 8.43. Do you love me enough to give me your attention till at least 9 o'clock? Do you love the Lord enough to give Him your attention past 9 o'clock? In Exodus 2, I focused on the verses between 11 and 17. You know what? If you don't have a Bible, if you don't have one, then look on the Bible that is next to you. If you can't, let's put our slide back up. If you can't afford a Bible, I will buy you one, right? I got a giant pastor salary. It's extraordinary. You should, you should ask Alex about it. He recently did my taxes, so he knows exactly. I mean, you would be amazed. I'd be happy to get you a Bible. I'll use Pastor Wade's credit card. <laughs> We're going to sit on the second chapter and look at a heart for God here. Moses had a heart for God. Exodus 2, and I'm going to read to you 11, and you're going to check your Bibles to make sure I'm not lying. One day, after Moses had grown up, He went out to where his own people, say own people, own people people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, glancing this way and that way, seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Moses had a compulsion, an obsession to fight injustice wherever he saw it. And in this case... He sees a Gentile abusing a Jew. And who does he come to the rescue of? The Jew. You know, when you think about that, that is noble. It's amazing. 
But you tend to care the most about people who look like you, live around you, and act like you. And the world's telling you that that's how it should be. In fact, in the name of fighting racism, we've produced some of the strongest racism that we've seen in this country in 50 years. God is for the Jew. Ask Sennacherib. Because Sennacherib attacked a particular Jew named Hezekiah. And in 2 Kings 19, 32 through 35, you should write that down because I don't have time to read it. God came to Hezekiah's rescue, just like Moses came to this Jew's rescue. But God didn't kill a single Gentile. His angel killed 185,000 Gentiles to protect Hezekiah. Does God care about the Jewish nation? Yes. Well, then maybe Moses' heart for God was just about Jews. Read with me in verse 13 of Exodus chapter 2. See, we're not going to leave Exodus 2. I'm just going to refer to the others. The next day, say next day. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? Moses didn't just intervene when he saw a Gentile beating a Jew. He intervened when he saw two Jews in an argument. He had a compulsion to maintain what was righteous and what was just. Do you think God cares when two Israelites fight? In Judges 20, verses 32 through 35, there was a situation where Israel had determined that the Benjamites were wrong, and they were. Man, were they wrong. And they were about to wipe them out totally, and God stopped it. Because God cares even when two Jews are fighting. God cares when it's a Gentile oppressing a Jew. And God cares when it's Jews oppressing other Jews. Let's keep reading. Verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters... And they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. Moving from verse 11 to verse 17, we see that Moses comes to fight with a Gentile to protect a Jew. Comes to fight with two Jews to get them to quit fighting with each other. And then he comes to the aid of A totally Gentile, non-Jew situation. Apparently Moses did not have racial problems. Apparently Moses did not only care about justice when it affected him. He cared about it wherever he saw it. Let me ask you, church. Have we gotten so myopic we only care about this church's vision? Have we gotten so short-sighted? Have we taught you about your purpose so much that it's me, Susie, Johnny, us four, and no more, Lord? That's what we pray about. That's what we think about. That's what we do. Or do you also care about Buddy Brasso's vision? Do you also care about Fabian Gretsch's vision? Do you also care about maintaining justice wherever injustice is found? See, Moses had a heart for God. He didn't limit it just to his people. 
He didn't limit it to just when Gentiles oppressed his people. He cared even if Gentiles were oppressing other Gentiles. Incidentally, it's kind of a funny thing. When you think about it, their reactions are all different. <laughs> Let me say this. Let's, before we leave this slide, do you hear that Moses has a heart for God? You want a heart for missions, a heart for domestic evangelism, a heart that is like the Lord? You want to carry His name? Lordship is everything. Let me read to you Galatians 3.8. I rarely lie when I preach. It's going to be 3.28. You, you can write it and check me later. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, Gabriel, I don't expect you to look at Carolyn and say she's no longer a woman. That would be odd. I can tell you my wife is still very much woman. More than enough woman for me. Man, is Jennifer pretty. She's turning red right now. But it does mean that we have an equal value in the Lord's sight. It does mean that although our functions are different, whether it's a Gentile oppressing a Jew, two Jews oppressing each other, or a Gentile oppressing another Gentile, the Lord loves righteousness. He wants to maintain justice. He cares about all who are oppressed. If you're going to have a heart like God, you have to care beyond your country's border, beyond your race. You have to care beyond your side of the ocean or your side of the world because you have His Name. You know, right now we're told that there are white Christians and black Christians. We're told that there are Protestant Christians and non-Protestant Christians. We're told that Christianity be, can be divided into all of these subsets. No, you're either in Christ first or you're not in Christ at all. It's an interesting thing. Everybody would rather just hang out with whoever looks like them. One of the last couples to leave this church when they first came into the church. Sweet people. Love them. They were so honest. I said, Pastor, we've never been to a church with so many white people in it. I said, yeah, me either. It's growing every year. You know? <laughs> I've never been to a church with so many white people in it either. So, said, well, we just don't know if we're comfortable. I said, then you have a real problem with Jesus, don't you? You know, by the way, he didn't look like you or me. Uh, and we're both striving to be conformed to him. They made it a few months, kind of, sort of. They attended a little bit here and there. But I want to go find a place that just looks more like them. You know what I want to do? Build a place that looks more like him. Yeah. I would never be deprived of the beautiful diversity that is in this room just because we were too cowardice to talk about what the world is trying to do to us. A heart for God cares about injustice wherever you see it. You don't overlook it. You don't act patronizing towards it. Listen, we have to address evil wherever we see it, or you do not represent the Lord. Lordship is everything. You want to ask about whether or not God cares about Gentiles oppressing Gentiles? In Isaiah 45, he raises up Cyrus to go whip Babylon. And he said, well, why would he do that? He didn't like the way Babylon whipped his people. Okay? God works even among the Gentiles. I promise. I'm proof. Would you like a heart for the kingdom? Yes. Moses has a heart for the kingdom. 
in verse 11 that we have already covered, he saw one of his own. (laughs) Incidentally, if you were the one who was being beaten and Moses protected you, how would you see Moses? He's probably the savior to you, right? He's the murderer to the Egyptian, but he's the savior to the Jew, isn't he? I found out that when you come to the aid of one of your own, they tend to call you a savior for it. And that's why we like to stay with our own, right? God cares about curing injustice wherever it is. The reason that Moses came to the aid of the Jew being beaten by the Gentile is because it was an injustice. Isaiah 58, 6 tells us that God cares very much about an injustice. And when he answered it, I don't know whether he was right or wrong. We preach messages all of the time about how Moses got ahead of God. Moses was... I guess it depends on whether or not you are the Jew that is being beaten. You follow me? So, well, Moses knew it was wrong. He looked this way and that way. Well, that was definitely wrong. But the fact that he came to his aid... I'm thinking that if I'm the one catching the beating, I'm happy. It was an answer to prayer. It's amazing how that works. You ever watch somebody and you say, I didn't like the way that they they preached that message? Well, I guess you didn't. You didn't get saved. But how about the guy that got saved? Did he like the way the message was preached? So it's a matter of perspective, isn't it? One of these guys saw Moses as a savior. Now, granted, Moses had room to grow I'm not, I'm not here to defend his mistakes. I'm here to tell you it's not a mistake to care about injustice. And sometimes you might not handle injustice correctly. Not entirely sure I did earlier. But I'm not sure that something didn't need to be done also. We have to trust the Lord to sort that out sometimes. You know what I know? Is it's wholly unacceptable to sit around and do nothing. That's what I know. In verse 13... What happened when Moses encounters two of his own? They vilify him. Do you remember what it said? Who appointed you judge and ruler over us? They question his calling. Do you know what happens next? In addition to that, they assign evil intent to him. Do you want to kill us as you killed the Egyptian? If you go protect one of your own who is fighting with somebody who is not your own, your own see you as a savior. You intervene when two of your own are there and you're the villain because they both think you should have sided with them. Because your loyalty is not to God, your loyalty is to the one of your own. You beginning to understand church politics now? Confronting unrighteousness is everything. Injustice and unrighteousness, God hates. Leviticus 19.15 says, Do not pervert justice. Whether you're dealing with a Jew and a Gentile or two Jews, two of your own kind, it makes no difference. You cannot pervert justice. You know what the greatest perversion of justice is? When you have the power to do something about something and you do nothing. You just abstain. You stand back and say, I don't want to get involved. I said, well, Aaron, I don't know if I have the power to do something about it. What did you get filled with the Holy Ghost for if not to do the very works of God? Or did you think that that was for your personal enrichment? 
In the third example, Moses comes to none of his own. <laughs> you got to love that, right? I want to tell you why I love the none of his own scenario. <laughs> okay? If you go say one of your own against someone else, they think, well, yeah, we're tight. We went to the same high school. You know, we both got beards. We're both fat. I don't know. They, they attribute it to something other than the Lord. You go to save two of your own who are fighting. In the end, you lose with both. They vilify you. You go somewhere where there are none of your own. Do you remember how this story ends up? Moses joins the family. He finds his own. See, I love missions. Because when you go where there are none of your own, you have no reason, you have no prejudice, you have no reason to be there except you had a heart for God and you had a heart for His kingdom. And there is something pure about that. There is something sweet about that. There is something very genuine about that. In the first example, with one of his own, we cured an injustice. In the example with two of his own, we confronted unrighteousness. But in the example with none of his own, we are carrying his presence. See, that area had never seen anyone like Moses. And because he shows up and he has the courage to face injustice, he's a man who is working to carry God's name. He becomes a part of their family. Sounds very much like a man of peace principle, doesn't it? I want to tell you his spirit over your flesh is everything. When God called Paul, do you remember what he tells him? It's Acts 9.15. You can leave this on the slide. Let me read this from Acts 9.15 to you. Y'all doing okay? You got a few minutes? In Acts 9.15. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. <laughs> this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Was Paul listening when he hears this report given to Anna, Ananias? Was Paul listening to his flesh or his spirit to carry it out? Whose flesh says, please, let me go be mistreated. I want a whole helping of that. You'll never have a heart for the kingdom if you're not led by his spirit. This is why Romans 8, 14 says, As many as are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. So when we knew that we were going to Turkey because God had told us that, we didn't go see what was the safest city we could go to in Turkey. We didn't look at the demographics and decide where we would have the greatest chance of success. Do you know what we did? We prayed and waited to see what the Spirit would say. And once, twice, Three times, four times, five scriptures come forward and then you begin to see God's will in those scriptures. Come on, do you want to be led by the Spirit? Do you want to advance His kingdom? Do you really think it only works that way in Syria or, will it, or Turkey or will it also work that way in your work week? Will it also work that way wherever you are? If you want a heart for God, lordship is everything. If you want a heart for the kingdom, being led of the Spirit is everything. Are you ready for our last teaching, our last part of the teaching? Will, will we have all of your attention for it? Yes. It's 9 o'clock. Pretend it's an episode of Lost that you stayed up for. <laughs> 
Can you tell how long it's been since I actually watched a television with waiting for the series to come out? Now we watch Netflix and you watch a season in a day and then later you throw up because you have wasted your life. <laughs> then you preach for the next six weeks against it and in the seventh week you do it again. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. <laughs> Moses had a heart for the people. If you consider what happens when he decides to come to the aid of that brother uh, Jewish man against the Egyptian, Moses had been a prince, but now he's forfeiting his position. He's throwing in his lot with those who are downcast. He's now sacrificing his position, his person, and his possessions. What has it cost you to follow Jesus? Have you really thrown in your lot with him? Can you really say that you bear on your body the marks of Christ Jesus? Can you really say that you have joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property? What can you say? Because you're going to share an eternity with men who did those things and you're going to have to have something to talk about and I doubt they'll be impressed with your 365 confessions of wealth. So what can you say? You know, the most brave, amazing thing that you could do is when you see somebody who is oppressed, when you see somebody who is suffering spiritual violence, when you see somebody who has been denied the freedom of the sons of God, that you throw in your lot with theirs, you stand in the breach and you say, I don't care what it costs me. I almost quoted C.T. Studd for a minute. I'm going to quote C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd said that those who do the most in the kingdom are those that don't care a damn for this world. That's, that's what he said. And the church world went crazy over it. How, how could he say damned? He said, because I'm not any holier than the apostle Paul who said if an angel from heaven brings you a different gospel, then he's damned. I'm not any holier than Jesus Christ who said, if you do not repent, you're damned Already, He said, we need to reclaim this word from the clutches of hell and reappropriate it for its proper use. So I'm saying to you, maybe you need to not care a damn about this world system and instead start caring about those who are damned. Isn't that a word for the church today? Oh man, it pricks my heart. I hope it does yours. In the 13th verse... Remember that Moses had been liked. I mean, the truth is, Josephus writes about Moses like most of Egypt was for Moses. In the 13th verse, to come to the aid of two downcast people who were fighting. Moses risked his very person. He said, well, what do you mean by that? I mean... He's already turned his back on Egypt. Now he has to s settle a dispute between two Jews. What if neither one of them like him? Which is exactly what happened. He's risking the only thing that he has left, his calling. Have you ever read uh, Acts 7? Stephen talks about this. He thought that they would receive him, but they didn't. So now he's cast out of Egypt. He's also cast out of what he thinks is his calling. What has it cost you? To follow Christ. 
Now he shows up at a well. And he sits down by a well. He only has the clothes that are on his back, as far as we know. And he seemed pretty fond of carrying a staff in his hand. So I'm going to go with the Cecil B. DeMille version. He had a stick with him. And what does he have left to risk? He's already given up all of his possessions. He's, he's got nothing. Now he's going to involve himself in the affairs of foreigners where there can be no personal gain. He's going to deny himself any profits that he would have had and just go be a saving presence among the people. Oh, is that not a heart after the Lord? If you've ever read about the man of peace principle from somewhere like, say, Matthew 10, the goal is that you do not take purse with you coins, money. You do not take a sword with you, protection. We leave our guns at home. I carry one every day here, but when we go on a mission field, I don't carry one. And if I'm waking up during the day here and I feel like it's an unhealthy thing, I set it down just to show that I can, right? Jesus Christ had them make sure they did not bring swords when they went out. That's interesting because they had them. And he had them set them aside. And later in ministry, he says, how many do you have among you? Two, that's enough. Okay? If you want a heart after the Lord, you set aside your personal protection. That's why you can't ask if it's safe. The point is, is that it's not safe. You set aside your personal provision. You might need to leave your credit cards at home. Otherwise, when you encounter some problem, you don't think you have to trust the Lord. You trust in the Almighty MasterCard. So you leave your protection at home. You leave your provision at home. You say, well, what do I have to offer? You have the name of the Savior Savior who sent you. And when somebody sees you with no protection and sees you with no provision, the only reason that they would receive you is they also wanted that name. That was the point. That's why you take a backpack into a canyon and nothing else. That's why you show up and say, you know what? I don't have a thing in the world to gain by being here. But I feel like the Lord sent me to be a saving presence here. I can teach you how to get in right order with God and with man. And you will be so blessed by it that you won't care anything about protection or provision. And you can be sent into the nations of the world. You're not a poor Peruvian. You're not a poor Indian. You're not a, a, a former communist a Romanian. You, you are, are not uh, in demitude status living in Muslim lands. You're actually a son of the living God, filled with the very Spirit of God. You have the same freeing power that fueled the man Moses. And if he brought them out, and he was not in the Newer Testament sense baptized in the Holy Ghost, then what is your excuse? Church, we're in the delivering business. I was talking about Moses and missions because I wanted to talk about you, mighty man, and your mission. We are going to build the movement. It is happening. It's been a time. I haven't had a day in the last 15 years that I've been free from legal attack, free from slander, free from financial attack. And you know what? I'm still here. And we're still seeing people delivered. 
And you know what? Our disciples are getting better and better every year. You know what that says to me? Devil, you can't stop me. I don't have anything you can steal from me. I don't have anything that you can seduce me away with. I have only my king. And he's enough for me. Is he enough for you, saints? If he's enough for you, then doesn't he compel you to share that goodness with everybody else who is dying around us? Yes. Could you stand to your feet?